I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kevin Outerson, an Associate Professor of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the Boston University School of Law. Professor Outerson has written a perspective article on punishing pharmaceutical companies for fraud. Professor Outerson, you begin your article with the recent record-breaking government settlement with GlaxoSmithKline, which will pay $3 billion for promoting its drugs for off-label indications and for failing to report safety data. Can you tell us more about the background of that case? How long were the fraudulent activities going on? How were they brought to light? And what is GSK's current position on its behavior? There are two main categories of claims here. The first is that for Avandia, that certain scientific data that should have been released was not. And for Avandia, the government claims and the the company settled, agreeing that from January 2000 until 2009, the company inappropriately hid scientific data about the safety of Avandia. The other claims in this case involve off-label promotion, off-label marketing. And for those, um, some of the cases of it, there are several drugs involved, but began as early as 1998, and for the most part continued until 2003 and 2004, although for Advair, it continued into, until 2010. So there's a lot of activity here over a decade, uh, some of it off-label marketing and some of it even more troubling hiding safety data that should be disclosed. And you say in your article that GSK is not an outlier in the global pharmaceutical industry. In fact, you give us a list of major drug companies that are currently under so-called corporate integrity agreements as part of fraud settlements. So what proportion of pharmaceutical companies are actually playing by the rules? Is there a domino effect here where the more companies cheat, the more their competitors feel forced to do the same? It's, it's hard to know. We do know that eight out of the 10 largest companies and a large swath of the rest are currently today under a corporate integrity agreement. So that tells you that whatever is going on is widespread. But I agree with your, your comment that it would be difficult for a company to do absolutely right, you know, to, to be completely above board. If all the competitors are cutting corners, competitively they would be put at a disadvantage. So this is really a sector issue. It's not necessarily that a single company is a bad actor or that there's a bad apple in the bunch or something. The entire sector is under pressure to sell their drugs, and they respond in similar ways at different companies. Many of the violations that you list involve off-label promotion, including that of GSK. But you pointed out in another perspective article last year that drug companies had recently raised First Amendment challenges to enforcement actions against this off-label promotion. Given recent court decisions about commercial speech, would you expect such a challenge to succeed in the foreseeable future? And and if so, what would that mean for the public health? I think that eventually we'll have a case that makes it to the Supreme Court that asks the question whether or not off-label promotion is protected under the First Amendment as commercial speech. In the meantime, the companies have been willing to settle this question away. For some of these cases, explicitly so, in the settlement agreement, they'll say, we raised a First Amendment question, but we agreed to waive it. I wasn't in the room on how they decided to do that, but perhaps they took a lower dollar value in order to to agree to waive that claim. But thinking about it from the company's perspective, it's hard to think about wanting to go all the way to the Supreme Court on a case like this. Because even if they think they had a good chance of winning, it puts the entire company at risk. 
The place where I think you'll see this suit happen is when an individual is being charged. And, uh, and they'll have to do some jail time if they lose. That person has very little incentive to settle. And uh, eventually we may see an executive charged with off-label promotion. And that case, I would expect, but would go all the way to the Supreme Court. You argue that individual corporate integrity agreements with companies that have violated the law are inadequate and that we should regulate the entire industry on a level playing field. What sorts of new regulations are you thinking of? Well, the data that I presented in this perspective is only federal. But there's also, in each of these cases, private settlements and and settlements with various states. So, for example, in the Johnson & Johnson suit, in which the federal settlement is due any time now, the states recently announced their settlement. And in that settlement, they agreed to some very interesting additional things. So it gives us ideas of new types of ways to regulate this behavior, more specific than the federal rules. As an example of the uh, state rules in the Johnson & Johnson settlement, they very specifically said that they would not do off-label promotion even with peer-reviewed articles, which is what the FDA currently permits, unless they had already filed a supplemental new drug application for that indication. Um, Only in that circumstance would a marketing personnel, a, a drug detailer, be permitted to share even a reprint of a peer-reviewed article with a doctor. All other off-label communications of any sort would go through the scientific liaison. So that is much more restrictive than current federal rules. And it was not, it's apparently not in the J&J federal settlement. It is in the J&J state settlement. One of GSK's violations, as, as you've said, was a failure to provide safety information to the FDA. What do you think needs to be done to keep drug companies from covering up that kind of damaging information? We rely on the integrity of the data you know, for medicine and for science. We absolutely need to know that the information that's peer-reviewed is, is accurate, is not subject to bias, is correct, that the companies haven't hit anything. So I think it's very threatening. In my mind, this is the, the more important of the three criminal settlements here. It's very disturbing that for Avandia, safety data was hidden uh, from, from the public and from the FDA. So there's certain things we can do. You know, Registering every clinical trial for humans at clinicaltrials.gov, that's a great step. Uh, medical journals certainly have a role of uh, gatekeepers and making sure that only you know, good science uh, gets published. But there also needs to be absolute data transparency. And today we're in a situation in which when the companies submit their file for a new drug application to the FDA. They include all sorts of material and studies and data, much of which is never published. They, they protect that as a trade secret, as, as, as data that they own, that they don't want to share with the world. But that data sitting in FDA files, which is protected from disclosure, is exactly the sort of thing that I would think that a reviewer looking at an article here at the journal or any physician about to prescribe for any condition would like to see that data. And so transparency for that data, I think, would be a big step forward. I also think that at some point, individuals have to be held responsible for scientific misconduct. Uh, So it's one thing for the company to pay a multiple billion dollar fine, but some people within the institution, within the company, and, and some outside researchers 
you know, if they made deliberate decisions to withhold data, there should be some personal responsibility as well. How close are we to that, and what has prevented us from, from in fact, seeing that? I don't know. It, it would be interesting to have been in the room with uh, the Glaxo lawyers and, and the U.S. Department of Justice, but um, I don't know why we haven't seen as many individuals named and charged in these suits. Speaking of individuals, you also say that researchers have identified several ways that the whistleblower provision of the False Claims Act could be strengthened to encourage whistleblowers within drug companies to come forward. Can you tell us about some of those ways? Well, the best whistleblowers are insiders, people that are deep inside the company that have access to the memos who are at the the meetings in which they were training them on how to influence physicians. When the identity of the whistleblower is revealed, their career is over. Right. Even if they have legal protection of being, against being fired right away, they'll never work again in the industry. So imagine if you were a physician or, for me, a lawyer, and at age 30 or 40 or 50, suddenly you have to find a completely different career and start from scratch. And everyone in your former industry now treats you as a pariah. So whistleblowers give up a lot to be a whistleblower. We think of them sometimes that they win the lottery because you know, some of them do get, you know, a million dollar or multiple million dollar sort of reward for being whistleblower. But uh, in the article that I reference, um, also from the New England Journal, um, many of the whistleblowers interviewed, even the ones who walked away with a lot of money, said they wouldn't do it again, uh, which indicates a real problem. If, if the whistleblowers, the people we rely on to undercover this fraud, if they have second doubts about doing it again, um, then we're not giving them enough protection. We're not giving them enough incentives. We're, we're not uh, making this decision easy enough for them. Sometimes they have to wait years. So imagine losing your career and then having to wait eight years to maybe get a reward for what you did. Whistleblowers need to be protected. They need to be rewarded effectively. Are there any cases in the courts now or, or on the horizon that are likely to change this landscape? either drug company regulation or healthcare fraud? You know, all of the cases on at least pharmaceutical company fraud have a depressing ring of familiarity to them. I mean, in a sense, they're all about the same thing in many cases. And uh, people who study them try to say, oh, well, here's one thing that's different in, in this case. So, so this goes back to what you asked before. If the whole industry is under the same competitive pressure, you would expect to see the similar sort of problems, you know, at many companies. So a lot of these cases are um, the same. The companies keep getting caught doing similar things. And uh, the reason why is because they're all under similar pressures uh, to sell more drugs and, and they cut corners in similar ways. This brings one of the, I think, one of the useful points in the perspective, the idea that instead of regulating this behavior after the problem after the horse is out of the barn, um, after we've caught them and then coming up with rules, perhaps we should be a little more proactive. And I also find it troubling that with these corporate integrity agreements, they expire in five years. And if we know anything, it's that this is systemic behavior. It's not likely to change eternally in five years <laughs> of, a, of, of, of a CIA. This is the sort of thing that is likely to be needed for a long time not just for a short period of time. 
Insofar as off-label drug promotion is aimed at physicians, what can physicians do to ensure that pharma is playing by the rules, to ensure that their patients are protected? I would hope the, the physicians were reading the label first off so that they know whether or not the, the use that is being promoted to them is on the label. If it's on the label, they know that it's been through a rigorous FDA pro, you know, process, which has problems, but it's a rigorous process with real science and advisory committees and, and the whole nine yards. If it's not on the label, then you're in a situation in which many off-label uses are great for patients. You know, there are, it's clear that off-label use is not always bad. It's many times very effective. And so you need to know what sort of data short of an approval from the FDA is out there. Now, if this was run by lawyers, the way that we would do it, set up an adversarial system. We'd have, you know, one lawyer representing one side and another lawyer representing the other, and they wouldn't be expected to tell the truth. You know, they'd be expected to represent their client, to put the best case on it. But that's kind of what you have today with drug detailers in your office. You have one from one company that says how great their drug is and tries to poke holes in the methodology of the other person's study, and then the next company comes in and does the same. So it would be useful in a sense to have a debate in your office between the two or three competitor companies and let their drug representatives go at it because they have great information on the strengths and weaknesses of each other's drugs. But what a colossal waste of time, right, for you to do that and every doctor in America to do that. And so I think that sort of process needs to happen publicly, transparently, you know, instead of it being replicated 600,000 times across the country. And that requires more transparency in the data and more public comment. And when we see gaps in the data, maybe that's where somebody like the NIH or another public agency funds a neutral study to answer the question, which of these two drugs is better for a particular case? Thank you, Professor Outerson.